welcome to Extra Vision with me, Andy McCarl. And on today's show, we're going to be looking back at the best and worst movies of 2023. And yes, there is a worst list. I know making movies is hard, but also spending the guts of 50 quid to go and see a film that turned out to be awful is also hard. And it is my honor, my pleasure, my privilege to welcome my guest today, a man who tries to see the positive in everything, except when it comes to me. It's movie critic Chris Wasser. Chris, how are you today, sir? I'm very well, and I enjoyed that intro. I'm going to take a leaf out of your book, and we're going to start positive. A film we were both looking forward to, and one that delivered, I feel, Oppenheimer. Oh, it it, it delivered, and then some. If, do you know what? I, I can't believe I was so naive or silly this time last year to think that a new Chris Nolan film opening the same week as Greta Gerwig's Barbie wasn't going to make the noise that it did. I, I, I just, I don't think either of us predicted that. Um, and I certainly didn't predict Chris Nolan, a Chris Nolan film about a theoretical physicist making a billion dollars in America, making more money than the Elvis film, for instance. Um, I just, I just did not see that coming and how foolish I was. Um, I thought it was just a masterwork and I've watched it since and enjoyed it more since actually I loved it the first time around, but you know, I was a little bit, you know, I was, picking it apart a bit, uh, watched it in the cinema for the second time. And I thought, okay, no, actually, this is just, this is probably his greatest achievement. The storytelling, uh, the visuals, the score, the performances, particularly that of Killian Murphy's, uh, just the, the level of control that Murphy has. You, you're kind of thinking to yourself, why hasn't he been, why hasn't he been doing these big league performances, especially in Nolan films? Um, but no, it's it's it really is terrific. And also, Andy, it reminded us of, just how good an actor Robert Downey Jr. was and still is away from, you know, the Marvel stuff, because as good as he was in the Marvel films, the type of performance that he, he delivers in Oppenheimer, it's just it's on another level. And I mean, I, 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 I'm not the first person to say this, and I definitely won't be the last. You kind of forget how good he is, don't you? You do. And I think because obviously the, the Marvel films consume about like 10, 15 years of his life. And the only kind of one he done in between that was The Judge and Dr. Doolittle, which were horrendous. Like things like Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang or Chaplin. I thought he was absolutely phenomenal in Chaplin. Yeah. And it is it is one of them where you kind of go, oh, yeah, no, this guy is is really, really talented. And I, I think as well, you've got Florence Pugh, you've Emily Blunt. Yeah. Josh Hartnett as well. Like the, the kind of performances he's pulling out of people, he, like you wouldn't think, like with the greatest respect to Josh Hartnett, he wouldn't be the one you'd throw in there if you were like casting a Chris Nolan film. But again, pulls a, a fantastic performance out of him. I know we kind of made fun of Matt Damon and the ad, that kind of, this is the most important thing in the world. But again, he is absolutely fantastic in that as well. And again, these people who've been jumping into all these franchises or in Josh Hartnett's case, kind of falling out of favor. He can pull performances out of absolutely anyone, it seems. He's kind of, he's got that the, the Tarantino thing where it's like, you know, he, he will real resuscitate your career very lively. He gets the best out of everyone. And I think that Matt Damon scene that you're referring to, we should remember now whenever anybody is criticizing a trailer or whenever anyone is, you know, laughing at a scene out of context before film is released you know every now and then a two-minute clip might come on twitter of a film that everyone's looking forward to and everyone says this is terrible this now when you look at that scene in the film it's actually a brilliant punchline and chris nolan's not a director who's you know famous for his comical moments but there are some darkly funny moments in oppenheimer um yeah he was getting the great bit the best out of everyone it took me a minute actually to to to, to go oh that that is josh hartness um You've got a you've got an Affleck brother in there too. Uh, the the only thing is, I w- I will say, he's still Nolan is still letting himself down when it comes to female characters. And the, you know, despite the fact that he does have two extraordinarily, you know, talented female performers in in Emily Blunt and, and Florence Pugh, there's they're they're still playing 
they're still playing characters that are half drawn that that are kind of one dimensional at times and that is something that i re- i would love to see him get better at um but everything else it's just it really is it's his masterpiece um and i'd love to see him be rewarded for it um at the oscars this year we're saying that about two minute clips i will say so you're saying madam webb could be potentially good despite the you know my my mother was looking for spiders in the amazon clip which has, has gone viral recently <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe that will be yeah, that maybe for the Oscars next year. yeah yeah maybe not that one so we can't talk oppenheimer without talking barbie now i will say one of us had this down at the start of the year as one of the potential flops of the year now i won't say who it was but why do you think barbie took off as well as it did great marketing um whoever you know i'd i'd love to know who invented the word barbenheimer and you know who was actually involved in 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 this idea that oh let's let's sell this as a double feature despite the fact that there are two opposing studios and despite the fact that it's the most unnatural double bill in the history of cinema um oppenheimer helped barbie and barbie helped oppenheimer uh but it also helped that barbie you know, th- this time last year, we were all wondering what Barbie was going to be about. And when we realized what it was about, the only, the, only, uh, the only time that we realized what it was about was while we were watching it. And there was a good story there and there was some good performances. And I'm going to ask you in a minute if uh, if it was me <laughs> that, that that predicted it being a flop. But I also think, you know, I didn't like this as much as everyone else did. You remember that? I, I remember it very well. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was I thought it was good. Um I thought it was. I thought the performances were, were were fine. I thought the ideas were a little muddled at times. Um, the screenplay was never really as funny as I thought it was. Uh, a phenomenal looking film, just beautiful to look at, and and performed so well um, by Gosling and by Robbie. But I just there, it just I found it a little bit tiring at times. I do think it's one of those films that you're either going to buy in a hundred percent, or you're kind of going to be on the outside looking in. And I think that the, the scene, the America Ferrera scene, where she gives the, you know, the, essentially the monologue, that could be the turning point for a lot of people. I have to say, I bought in completely. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I thought Gosling and Margot Robbie were absolutely phenomenal. I thought Michael Cera was hilarious as well. Yeah. And, and I will reveal that it was me who thought this was going to absolutely bomb. Okay, right. Uh, interesting. I just thought, like, at the start, because, again, we didn't know a hell of a lot about the plot. I thought it's it's a, an adult film about, you know, a Barbie a Barbie doll that, you know, is are they as popular as they used to be? Who exactly is it aimed at? What's it going to be? Is it going to be kind of self-referential like the Lego movie, but kind of more adult-themed? And it was just kind of, it, it picked its lane, and it was something unique outside of all of that. And I thought it was absolutely incredible. I was sitting there in my, my pink hoodie and my pink Jordans open night. I bought in completely, I'm ashamed to say. Yeah, unfortunately, I didn't buy into it the way that you did. Um, and as a result, actually, I, I remember for, for a couple of weeks, I was being lumped into um, just any, like anyone who, who who read my review or came across my, my thoughts on the film. Like I was just lumped into this, you know, section of the Internet where mostly male, uh, you know, all of these toxic opinions about the film from guys who actually maybe didn't even see the film. A lot, a lot of dudes online, Andy, had some horrible things to say about this film. And I feel like if anyone had any sort of negative word to say, you were just lumped in with that. And I hated that um, because I did quite like Barbie. I just, you know, I didn't love it. Um, I thought the performances were good. I thought the, you know, some of the ideas were brilliant. Just as a whole, it didn't it didn't, you know, I didn't think it was as entertaining as other people did. Um, but I, I, but I never thought for a minute that it was going to flop. Um, and I still think it's actually interesting that even a few months or what, half a year after after it was released, 
I was I was talking to some family recently who haven't actually seen it. And when I said to them, oh, you know, because I still would recommend that they that they watch it. They just thought, oh, is this not a, a, a film for kids? It's so mad that people who haven't seen it think that it's, you know, oh, it's just a film about Barbie dolls or it's a film that, you know, oh, I wouldn't want to watch that because that's for a certain audience. I don't I don't think that at all. So even the, despite the fact, I guess what I'm trying to say is despite the fact that I didn't love it, I would still recommend it. That's because you're basically the Ben Shapiro of Irish film criticism oh, now. Actually. You and oh, you, I, I'd lump the two yous in there together. No, you're grand. Thanks. But I do think it's interesting that anyone that had any sort of just thought like, yeah, or, or just maybe thought that this aspect of the film could, could have been better or that you were just straight away. Oh, you're saying this because of, you know, X, Y and Z. I thought that was uh, that was interesting. It's kind of the, the Snyder effect as well. It's like if yeah. you if you say something negative, it's because you didn't or you didn't understand or you didn't have X Y Z. So like no, no, you you need to be able to judge these things on their merits. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. The same way that like if you didn't like Oppenheimer, you know, I'm not going to call you any names or I'm not going to you know you know point at you and laugh if if you didn't like it. You know, tell me why you didn't like it. Let's have a discussion about it. We're going to move away now from Barbie to a film that was about as different as you can get, and it was on your favorite list. Car starring Kate Blanchett. Yeah, I thought this was just terrific. Um, directed by Todd Field, who actually hadn't made a, a film in maybe, I think it was like a decade and a half. It wasn't for everyone. Um, I actually thought it was interesting that in the month following its release, you had the uh, multi-award winning US conductor, uh, Marin Alsop. She came out and said that she thought this film was a disgrace. And perhaps the reason she was saying that was because the uh, conductor, the fictional conductor, at the heart of Todd Field's film, um, her professional accomplishments mirror those of Marin Alsop's. And if you've seen Tar, or if you read about what this character is accused of, maybe you can understand why someone who shares the same professional accomplishments might have thought, well, okay, if you're if you're basing this film off of the professional life, I don't really like then the personal life that this fictional character has. Um, but it is important to remember that it is a fictional piece of work and it's basically about a, an acclaimed conductor. Uh, she's an EGOT recipient. In other words, she has the Emmy, she has the Grammy, the Oscar, the Tony. She is among the most influential uh, composers and conductors in the world, but she is also, you know, an abusive power player. You know, she has been a bad egg throughout her career and she's been... Uh, She's, you know, treated people around her, uh, uh, specifically kind of younger uh, protégés, uh, very poorly. And it all starts to kind of come back and, uh, and, and, and haunt her and kind of like tear, tear, you know, tear down her career. And she, and she completely deserves it. Uh, and Kate Blanchett plays this, uh, uh, plays this conductor um, who's, who basically whose legacy begins to crumble out following allegations of misconduct. Um, so Miss Alsop is actually name checked in the film, but again, it's important to remember the tar is not about her. Um, and even Kate Blanchett and Todd Field came out in the weeks after its release and said, this is a complete work of fiction. Um, and it's just fabulous. Andy, I don't know whether you've seen it, but it's just, it's chilling. Uh, it's quite a complicated story, full of big ideas, but I think it pulls all of them off. Um, and it goes, it, it goes above and beyond to to just completely unnerve you. And I quite I quite enjoyed that. Very long, as most of the films we'll be talking about were here. I mean, Oppenheimer is three hours long. This one, you know, comes in at about two forty five, I think. Um, but it flew in for me. I th just thought it was a masterpiece. Have you seen it? I did. I absolutely loved it. This is one of those ones you were pushing on me for a while. And yeah. I was kind of a, a bit hesitant, I'll be honest, because it looked like one of these pretentious shite that you absolutely love and I, I don't <laughs> get at all. But it, it just, I, I like the kind of the contrast of it because it's about this, you know, basically horrible person and like the, the, the fall from grace that they have. But there's also these like kind of lovely serene moments. There's a great moment in the classroom which you kind of describe and, what music means to her and what that you know can can mean to you know a person's perception and what kind of 
you know, kind of the the altruistic, you know, love of, of, of something that brings you so much joy and ultimately can end up destroying you. I will say, as much as I loved everything, everywhere, all at once, I think Kate Blanchett should have won the Oscar for for Best Actress for this. Absolutely. Um, I think Everything, Everywhere, All at Once is very good, but it's the best film that I never want to watch again because I think it will fall in on itself or I will ask too many questions that I know the story won't be able to answer. So I had a very good time with that film, but I just thought it's a lot to take. Um, and Michelle Yeoh is terrific in it, but for me... The Oscar went to the wrong. Actually, in 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 two acting categories, in the best actress and in the best supporting actress, the Oscars, and in the best actor, let's just say Brendan Fraser for the whale as well. Uh, Andy, they got their Oscars all wrong last year, but um, Kate Blanchett deserved that Oscar. A hundred percent. I will say I do think the uh, that it was a Daniel Kwan and Daniel uh, Scheinhart. I think they should they deserve best director over um, over Todd Field. But like you said, like best actor, Brendan Fraser, that, that's going to age like like Green Book. Yeah, I think it already um, has. Best supporting actor. Best supporting actress, that was kind of, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis, I'm never going to begrudge her getting anything. No, I, I, I'm not. And, and you know, look, it, it it was a nice moment, but at the same time, I Angela Bassett in, in, in that Black Panther sequel was just electrifying. She's the one great thing about that film. And I, I would love to have seen her get it. I never in a million years thought that was going to be the one you were going to pick. Who do you th- who do you think I was going to say? I was waiting. I was waiting on Kerry Condon there. Okay, no, yeah, Kerry Condon was great in it, but there was this thing like it was it was weird when when those um, nominations for the Banshees of Inisherin were announced last year. I remember thinking this is fantastic. Don't know if they're all going to get it, despite the fact that Colin Farrell, Farrell definitely deserved it over um, over Brendan Fraser. I just thought it was a, it was a better performance. Um, I just didn't think he was going to. Um, and yeah, I, I thought Bassett was just, she was, she was the best thing about that Black Panther sequel. It was a mess. Um, yeah, I mean, it just, it's it started on such a, uh, uh, it started from such a wobbly base, unfortunately, but I just thought she was terrific in it. I'm kind of disappointed at how much we're agreeing on everything here. Yeah. And another film on your list that I absolutely loved was the, the documentary Still, a Michael J. Fox movie. This was just absolutely fantastic. It was funny. It was heartbreaking. And you, you kind of go in, and, and I like that they addressed it straight away. You, you see that. I, I was putting off watching this for ages because I was thinking, oh, this is just going to be, you know, depressing and sad. And then it's going to be, you know, oh, he's dealing with his illness. You know, you, you've seen a million of these documentaries. But the opening scene of it is the director basically saying that to Michael J. Fox. Oh, this is going to be about you, you know, your great career and then getting your illness and on the downtrodden how you live with it. And Michael J. Fox turns around and goes, that sounds really fucking boring. Yeah. And I absolutely love that. There's, there's a great scene as well at the start where he's walking past and a woman on the street recognized him. And because of the Parkinson's, like he, he's doing his physiotherapy and he, he falls on, in the middle of the street. And you're like, oh, geez. And then he gets up and he's like, oh, you swept me off my feet. And he's, like, he's still kind of sharp as a tack and he's still in there as well. And he just has absolutely no sense of, of feeling sorry for himself or he's kind of used all these positive things. And anyone who's seen the, the episode of Corby Your Enthusiasm with him knows, you know, he's michael j fox is still very much in there it's a wonderful film i think its biggest flaw actually is that there isn't enough of it um clocks in at a tidy 90 minutes and you're just you're left there going come back um you would listen to him tell his story all day and i think actually the filmmakers told his story brilliantly because it's it acts as a as a sort of cinematic companion to his memoir um because the decision was made that you know he wrote this uh, compelling 
book that tells the story of his life and obviously the, the the documentarian behind it or the documentary behind the film thought well that book could make for a great film so as much as it's a you know a camera fixed on michael j fox telling his story the decision then to actually hire actors whose faces we never see it's just kind of the backs of the head or kind of you know they're, they're, they're flying by the screen um to reenact or reconstruct moments like let's say michael j fox having to run from the set of family ties at the end of the night to back to the future and then you know back to his apartment for a few hours of kit before basically doing it all again he did that for four months um they're wonderful little moments it's like it's almost like a it's like a pop-up storybook of a documentary it's full of vibrancy and uh humor and it's a very funny film despite and, and you touched on it there it's a very funny film despite the fact that it tells a very sad story. Yeah, I think it's a, there's a, another one as well. David Holmes, the boy who lived about the, the stunt man on Harry Potter who yeah. was paralyzed in an accident on the set. I think they're kind of good companion pieces as well because weirdly I'm kind of watching this and I'm just like the, the David Holmes one, uh, the boy who lived. And I'm somewhat kind of, like it sounds awful, I'm kind of envious of him and how he adjusts to every situation, how he always kind of sees the positives and like someone like myself who has not gone through anything near what he's gone through. And I'm just looking on, I wish I had his attitude. I wish I had that, that positivity, that kind of will to drive forward as well. And I, again, two very, very likable people in those documentaries. Yeah, no, they're extraordinary uh, human beings, but I think it's a weird one, Andy, that you find that positive attitude out of something horrible. Um, and I do wonder if, you know, Michael J. Fox, obviously it had to have been in him, all along, but it really came out after he, you know, he found out that he had been died, you know, because he was diagnosed with, with, with Parkinson's at such a young age. Um, but just that, that, that whatever he, whatever it was that he found that just told him, no, I'm not going to let this define my life. I'm not going to let it basically derail my career. I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to be positive about this. I just thought that was extraordinary. And it's actually, it's, it's made me appreciate because we kind of think of like two, maybe three, maybe four roles with Michael J. Fox in terms of his whole career. But then you start to look at the work that that he did after he was diagnosed and after the Back to the Future films and, and appreciate it a bit more because after watching this film, you know what he was going through and you know that he was trying to to hide it because he just didn't want that to be the focus. And it's it's so unusual then to see the clips where he's either like um he's like holding onto a book or he's holding onto a phone or he's got his hands in his pockets because he just doesn't want he doesn't want that to be the focus. And you can understand that. Yeah, and there's again there was one of those things like uh, I remember watching Spin City uh growing up as a kid, one of them, and kind of seeing just how bad it was on yeah. the set of that. Like and you never like like you said, Parkinson's to me it's been this kind of this old man disease or something like like Muhammad Ali got it from uh, from trauma through boxing. Like Michael J. Fox, again, it, the fact he still looks about 22 as well doesn't doesn't help either. But it just seemed like something that shouldn't fit, especially someone like that. It felt cruel and, and very, I know it's not fair on pretty much anyone, but someone like him, it didn't seem fair that it happened to him. Yeah, I know what you mean. He's an extraordinary, extraordinary person. That's an extraordinary film. Another extraordinary fella, um, a, a chap by the name of Marcel. Marcel, the the shell with shoes on. Uh, did have you have you watched this? I have watched this. I put you onto this, so I won't hear any word of this. Oh, this is uh, one of those one of those situations. Uh, what was it last year? Promising a woman that you were telling everyone that you you recommend it to everyone. Uh, Marcel, the shell with shoes. Because you saw it before me, doesn't mean I didn't <laughs> put you onto it. <laughs> this is just it's a it's a beautiful piece of work. Um. It, it the title kind of explains everything. You know, we are dealing with a tiny, t 
talking shell whose name is Marcel and he does in fact wear shoes. Um, the idea, uh, the story here is just, it's, it's so original, um, but it's actually based on a series of shorts. Um, and I wasn't actually familiar with the online shorts before. And I think there were maybe three, some something like three short films or something for oh, over the course of like six years. But eventually uh, you had Dean Fleischer Camp and Jenny Slade, who created this character, were given the opportunity to make a film. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's about um, this documentarian who is in a bit of a rut in his personal life uh he is getting a divorce he's moved out of his house uh and it's sort of a semi-autobiographical thing about dean fleischer camp and jenny slate who used to be together um but he moves into this airbnb um trying to figure out you know where what, what his next step is and he discovers this tiny talking shell living in one of the cupboards but not just that but this tiny talking shell named marcel seems to have the run of the place and has the whole place figured out about you know where he gets his food from, uh, where he sleeps at night, how he just gets around the house. I think at one stage he uses like a jar of honey that he, you know, he attaches some honey to his feet and then that means he can walk on the walls and then get up to the presses. It, it's, if it sounds bonkers, that's because it is. But he lives with his beloved uh, his, his, his nana, uh, Connie, um, voiced by Isabella Rossellini. Um, and there used to be a whole community of them or a whole family. But he lost his family when the previous couple moved out. They accidentally took them off in their luggage. So he has no idea where they are. But a filmmaker just moved into the house. So he realizes that he might be able to use the filmmaker and the filmmaker might be able to kind of you know, use Marcel as well as a, as a distraction, as a new project to find this family. Um, so it's about the two of them bonding together and just, you know, setting off on this adventure to find themselves and to find their purpose. Um, it's a lovely, lovely film. And I think it's, um, and it's so funny. It's original. It's extraordinarily profound for, for a film that blends, um, I mean, you know, it is live action, but it also blends stop motion animation. For a film that's nominated for Best Animated Feature, you don't think, it's probably a weird thing for me to say that you don't expect uh, such a profound kind of idea or heart at the center of a cartoon, but, 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 but it does have that. It is one of those where you, if you try and explain, and I've had this, it's like a warm hug of a film. And yeah. if, if you're trying to get someone to watch it, you're like, Look, it's about this shell that can talk, that lives with other shells, and someone moves in, and they're you know trying to find the rest of it. But no, this sounds ridiculous. Um, and it, again, it's one of them. You just went, please give me. I get one veto a year. Just watch this one. I promise you, you will absolutely love it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I thought it actually, it has more to say about life than most dramas you watch. Um, and it's just so sweet. There are just some unforgettable lines in it yeah i've been i mean several times last year i was thinking of uh what was it when marcel says uh he's looking out the window and he's just had the worst day ever and the sun is split in the trees and he says to uh the documentary maker why is it that the sun always shines on the days where you don't want it to or the days where you've experienced a loss or something like that and that just stuff like that just completely floored me you know and then like in the, in, the, in, the, in the same breath or in the next scene you know the dog might accidentally chase after him or something <laughs> um it's just it uh it's a wonderful film and i think it um it deserved all the praise it got and as i said it was nominated for an oscar last year for best animated feature it didn't win uh nothing was going to be uh guillermo del toro's pinocchio but maybe it should have hundred percent. I, I love Pinocchio as well, I have to say, but I think that should have got it. I think something that, that that pairs well with this as well. I'm sounding like a kind of a movie sommelier. I'm pairing everything with everything today. Pairing, yeah. yeah. Puss in Boots 3, The Last Wish. Have you seen that? I have, yeah. That absolutely floor. Like, I wasn't expecting, like, you know, the, the movie, the, the most of the year that kind of made me have, like, an existential crisis about, you know, kind of the value of life and, you know 
chasing your dreams and things like would be you know the third film and you know, the, the shrek spin-off series but this was absolutely incredible the animation style was brilliant the message at the heart of it it was like one of the most brilliantly written movies that i'd seen all year it just it, it's it's the epitome of those you know it's it's for the the kids come watching oh yeah it's great the cats doing the fight but the parents are watching go oh my god like what what am i doing with my life what can i do with my life and what should i be doing going forward it surprised the hell out of me and i like the direction that dreamworks animation has taken in the last few years where it's not you know they 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 were kind of making the same cartoon over and over with the same backdrops the same sort of characters the same sort of uh the same sort of style um and they're really i think they did it they also did it with the bad guys where they're starting to blend this sort of um comic book style sketchbook style um hand-drawn technique with their traditional well at this stage it's traditional uh cg um style and they're basically just making a bit more of an effort they're mixing it up and puss and boots really benefited from that um effort in the animation department and also just the story so simple but so original the idea of a cat having spent eight out of its nine lives and then having just an absolute meltdown at the thought of not being able to you know go into battle with that kind of you know no because all all the time puss and boots has always like gone off on these mad adventures thinking to himself i have i have nine lives but what if he was down to his last one it's a simple idea and it works very well and another animated film andy where there was one scene that just completely floored me and it's it's when puss comes across like his great i think it's the big bad wolf and he runs into the forest and he just realizes i i I, he thinks to himself "I, i can't do this and he starts to have an anxiety attack and his and, and and his friend has to try and calm him down, try and help him with this panic attack. Um, you don't expect something profound like that from from not from the Shrek universe, not after five, six, whatever, how many ever however many films it is at this stage. Um, but they still they still got it. Yeah, a hundred percent. And like again, like Puss and Boots having a, a panic attack, and yeah, was it uh, not Kitty? So uh, Peril by uh, Harvey Guillaume from what we do in the shadows. That is just an absolutely beautiful character as well. That's the one mm-hmm. you kind of come come away with. Just like I want Pierre to be my friend. Yeah. He's just the most lovely, positive person you could possibly yeah. come across. And again, it's just one of those films that just surprised the absolute Christ out of me. Yeah. Oh, and the I I know wasn't there a, a leak late last year? Um, was it like some poor Sony employee who spoiled the fact that there's another Shrek um, on the way? Maybe if not, if not this year, then for release next year. Um, and I know some people might have been rolling their eyes, but after seeing the last Puss and Boots, I'm thinking, bring it on! If you're gonna, if you're gonna, if you're gonna continue that sort of animation style, and if you're going to work hard to really surprise the audience with something funny, something moving, something intelligent, then let's see it. And just on animation as well, another film I absolutely loved, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. I thought the first film was absolutely incredible. Like It it breathed new life into the superhero genre, which has just gone absolutely stagnant. And trying to do a second version of that as well with, you know, the kind of the the few behind the scenes issues that were going on with that, I thought this was absolutely incredible as well. It's something, you know, trying to do, when you do something unique first time around, Trying to do it the second time without changing what made the first film great is a very, very difficult thing to do. And again, it took something so different, the kind of, you know, the main part of this, you know, the the difficulty of being a new parent, the responsibility that comes with that, how your life changes off the back of that. I thought that was done really, really well. It wasn't kind of cast as a, a throwaway thing in this film. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And I think these are the ways to kind of, 
if you want to reinvent the superhero films, pick a story and stick to it. Don't try and tie in, you know, oh, you need to watch the series. You need to watch the show. You need to watch, you know, the, the serial box to get this. Pick a story and tell that. And I think that's something this done. And I think something Puss and Boots done really, really well, which isn't a sentence I was expecting here. Um, you're going to hate me. You ready? Didn't like it. I haven't seen it. Oh, well, that's not too bad. I don't know how it, it just, yeah, it passed me by, which is a shame because I thought the the, the previous one is probably the best thing that Marvel's, I was going to say the Marvel's done. It's not even the Marvel Studios film, but it's certainly the best, uh, the, the original film was one of the best superhero movies in the last 10 years. Um, if you have that one, then let me squeeze one more in um, myself. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. Yes. Fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Did not expect at the start of the year that Seth Rogen, Actually, that Seth Rogen would have the year that he had because he had a very good year on the big screen and the small screen, but I did not expect himself and Evan Goldberg, the two of them, <laughs> to basically revive. And you know, revive is not even the right word to actually make the first great Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film because let's face it, I love the Turtles. They have never had a, a decent film. Those, those earlier live action things are just peculiar. They're, they're 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 bonkers and they're 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 unusual how they're, dare you go I, ninja I, go ninja go how uh, god damn dare you they're 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 painful at this stage and the animated efforts then have been kind of strange and then the ones with uh megan Fox i thought that Johnny... was a 2007 patrick stewart does one the voice i thought that was really really good where has the where Raphael leaves essentially i thought that was very good is it the one with sarah michelle geller in it possibly yeah not good um and then whatever, I, I don't know, really know what was going on in those Michael Bay things, but they weren't turtle films. They didn't even look like turtles. No, but um, absolutely shite. One of the best things about this actually is probably like the, the Seth Rogen film is that it's one of the first to remember that they're supposed to be kids. They're supposed to be teenagers. Um, and so they treat them that way. And even in the, when it came to the voice cast, they auditioned something like a, a thousand um, teenage unknowns, you know, in, in, in America. Uh, and as a result, like the, the, the so the turtles, so there's so many kind of starry supporting players in this. You've got Ice Cube playing a playing a villain called Superfly. Straight away, you're in, and straight away, Ice Cube was in. All he had to be told actually was that his character was called Superfly, and he thought, where do I where do I sign? Uh, you've got uh, Ao Adabiri from the Bear playing uh, April O'Neil. You've got Jackie Chan in there. You've got uh, John Cena, Paul Rudd, just a tr- terrific you know, starry supporting ensemble to surround these newcomers out in front. And again, it just, it treats it like a coming of age film. It's almost like what would the turtles, despite, and it's animated and it kind of adopts that sort of across the Spider-Verse or, or, um, or Puss in Boots style where it's traditional hand-drawn sketch techniques with computer generated magic. Um, but it's almost like if you can, if this, if this makes sense at all, like what would it look like if John Hughes had made a Teenage Turtles film? And this and 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 and, it, and it's this. It's magical. It's funny. It's 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 spirited. It's charming. I loved it. And a sequel is in the works. And I will definitely be there on day one. I'm kind of raging. You said the John Hughes thing because that is absolutely fucking spot on. Yeah. See, well, I'm not used to. I'm not used to hearing you say that. Thanks very much. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to have what I I think is going to be our first disagreements. Oh no. A film I absolutely loved. Uh, I came out of this thinking this is going to be the Oscars, and that's a man called Otto. Oh yeah, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. At no point did I ever think this is going to the Oscars, and I'm a little bit disappointed that you did. I, I have never. I honestly got the, the screen was packed for this, which right. again surprised me as well. Everyone coming out. I have never seen anything like it. It's like you'd roll tear gas into the audience. 
everyone was coming out sobbing and my miss will hate me for saying this the drive home she was still crying i absolutely love i thought tom hanks was incredible in it for those yeah. well but most people haven't seen him he's he's recently widowed he's decided he's going to kill himself but he's kind of this kind of prim and proper man so he's like i need to take care of you know the, the few outstanding bits of business i have and then i'm going to do it a family moves in next door and he kind of inadvertently befriends them and, and gets caught up in their life and you know you can kind of guess where it's going from there but i just thought it was so for something that could have been so sickly sentimental i really really enjoyed it i thought he was incredible in it i think I, tom hanks has kind of been coasting on being tom hanks for a while i thought he really went above and beyond in this and i like the fact that I think it's his real life song plays the younger version of him in this as well I was coming out of this thinking, okay, that's Tom Hanks for Best Actor and uh, Marina Torino. I thought she was going to get Best Supporting Actress. Okay. And then nobody saw it. And everyone who did, like yourself, went, it's grand. Oh, well, I wouldn't say nobody saw it. I remember, like, it... it I, th- I, think I, I think I might be right now, but uh, it, it made at least $100 million, which... For if and like and I know people listening to the plot there might not think might think that's not going to make you know blockbuster money, but I think it did. Uh, maybe it passed people by in Ireland, but certainly in America it performed really well. Um, and it is look, it's nice. It's a sort of uh, you know, it's Tom Hanks. It's a wonderful life basically. Um, and you know it has its moments, and he performs very well in this. He performs a lot better in a man called Otto than whatever he was up to in the Elvis film. Um, though I don't think that was necessarily his fault. Uh, but yeah, it's a wonderful late in the day, uh, Hank's performance. Um, I will say too, uh, if you haven't seen the original, the Swedish film, The Man Called Ove, uh, check that out. I knew you were going to like, yeah, bring it back the to pretentious. Some... Oh, I actually know. Yeah. You watch it subtitle. Yeah, you know, it's so much better with subtitles. When I can't understand what people are saying, that's, that's my trail. Well, well, we'll stick with kind of art house, you know, pretentious films. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. Yeah, you know, I watched it again last week. Does it hold up for you? Fabulous, fabulous. And you know what the best thing was? Loved watching it with family and looking around the room and saying and seeing everyone just kind of leaning into it. And especially when it, when it came to the, the 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 car chase around Rome or the just the nightmare scenario on the train carriages at the end. Uh, you could feel just like there were five or six of us in the room and you could just feel everyone go, oh, oh God, <laughs> just not able for it. Um, yeah. And it's a pity that Tom Cruise didn't see that. And <laughs> it's a pity that he wasn't there to witness that moment and then just go, cinema, what? There's been a weird kind of backlash to this. Like the, the fact they're even, they're not changed. Like it's not going to be called Dead Reckoning Part 2. They're changing the name. I know that the box office was affected by, you know, the Barbenheimer juggernaut coming out. I think it was like two weeks after it opened. Yeah. But there seems to be a kind of, you know, uh, a critical or public response that maybe this wasn't as good as the other ones. I think the fact it was nearly three hours didn't help with, with people in that end, but I absolutely loved it. Like, yeah. Tom Cruise, again, like every Tom Cruise film, first few minutes, I'm like, oh, this lunatic believes in volcanoes and aliens, and then he jumps off a cliff and breaks his anchor. Like, yep, no, 100%, I'm in here. Yep. Uh, in hindsight, definitely wasn't a good idea for Cruise and the team of Paramount to uh, release Mission Impossible nine days before Barbenheimer. Um, but at the same time, we talked about Tom Cruise and we talked about this film on your podcast, what, like six, six, seven months ago. Um, and neither of us at the time thought that Barbenheimer, we never said that Barbenheimer was going to hurt this film box office because it was off to a flying start at that stage. I think it made it made north of 250 million in its opening weekend. So that'll give you an idea of the trajectory it was on before basically, you know, Barbie and Robert Oppenheimer got in the way. Um, 
So I don't, I don't blame, I mean, it wasn't a good idea, but at the same time, nobody could have seen that huge success coming, at least not when it comes to the planning stages of setting dates for films. And maybe by the time they realized how big Barbenheim was going to be, they just couldn't move it. You know, the wheels had already started moving. We have to release this film. And maybe the reason why they're going to, uh, and it's so crazy, Andy, that this film made nearly $600 million and it's deemed a box office disappointment because it costs nearly $300 million. That is just insane. But maybe the reason that they're moving away from having the next film be called Dead Reckoning Part 2, despite the fact that it will be a Part 2, because it's half a Mission Impossible. There's still so many. It ends, you know, almost literally has a cliffhanger ending, uh, you know, and it kind of leaves us wondering what's going to happen to several characters, what happens next between, is it Gabriel and Ethan? All that kind of stuff is just left unanswered. But they probably won't call it Part 2 because maybe they're thinking that, oh, well, audiences didn't like the fact that it was Part 1. So that's why they didn't show up. No, they just didn't show up because your local cinema put on more Barbie screenings instead of more Mission Impossible screenings. That's all. People really liked this film. The people who went to see it really liked it. And I hope that no decisions are being made right now to change things because, oh, you know, audiences didn't like this. They didn't like that. No, they did. Whatever story you were originally planning on telling, tell the rest of it. 100% agree with that. Another film I love that I don't think you were that much of a fan of, Evil Dead Rise. Oh, no, I thought it was good. Yeah, I think um, the Evil Dead films have, uh, we, we've, we've argued over them. Uh, I think at one stage I said maybe this was a return to form and what well, you, you argued that, that the form had never soured. I genuinely think this is the most consistent and the best horror franchise. Like pound for pound, this is the best horror franchise. One, two, and three are fantastic. The remake uh, a couple of years ago, um, that was fantastic as well. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. I was raging that didn't get a, a sequel. I thought this one was absolutely fantastic as well. If you're looking at something like, you know, like the Halloween franchise, when you get the, the Cult of Thorn in the middle of it, it was like, you know, four films in a row that are absolutely shite. And then you got like Buster Rhymes, Dropkick and Michael Myers. I don't think there's a bad film in the Evil Dead series. Okay. Well, I mean, that's impossible for me to, to argue it when you start comparing, <laughs> comparing it to... To, to, to Halloween or if you if you if you do okay I will admit if you sit Evil Dead in the middle of all those horror franchises where you've had too many entries and too many bad ideas and too many bad films yeah it looks a lot better but that's only with perspective Andy like it's still like the first one was terrifying the second one was quite funny and, and, and full of ideas but then you get into Army of Darkness and then the remakes ah, they're, they're, they're just a bit wobbly and, and, and quite unnecessary but I thought this one from Lee Cronin yeah it was it did everything that, do you know what it did? It did something that very few horror films did uh, did last year for me. And this should be a basic requirement, but it scared the crap out of me. I, it genuinely was terrifying. And you think that it, and that might sound like such a stupid thing to say, but it is a basic requirement that a horror film like Evil Dead about, you know, these uh, flesh possessing ghouls, there, there has to, it has to do something new it has to unnerve audiences it has to make them want to look away from the screen and that's very hard to do now because we've seen so much but somehow lee cronin he found a way to make me uncomfortable in the cinema so i am grateful to him for that you have touched on it there because i hate that horror aspect that's crept in now this was elevated horror like was it scary no but it really made me think fuck off it's supposed to be scary i thought the performances were fantastic i thought alicia sutherland was absolutely great in it and because I love this franchise, you know, do I want the the Bruce Campbell thing? I want nods to it, but I don't want it to be kind of leaning too much. I thought it thread that line absolutely perfectly. It had the references. It had like the, the Bruce Campbell voice cameo in it as well. 
had little nods and winks to the other ones without, you know, beating you over the head with it. I absolutely, I had such high hopes for this film. And I was kind of, you know, waiting for this to be the big disappointment of the year. It wasn't. It just exceeded all expectations, which for something when you're looking forward to a franchise film, essentially, that's getting rarer and rarer. You know what? And this is a weird thing to say about watching an Evil Dead film, but it made me feel like a kid again because I think about an hour in, I just had to run out to the loo in the lighthouse. And when I got into the loo, I was the only one in there. Before I even knew what I was doing, I was checking the stalls before. before. <laughs> <laughs> and then afterwards, just thought to myself, did you really do that? Did you really check the stalls? That's how much this film freaked me out. Um, so, yeah, I've never. Fair, I, I've seen some weird things in you know, the stalls of that cinema. So, <laughs> you know, the, the, a dead eye is probably the least of your worries in there. <laughs> no, it did. It completely unnerved me. Uh, great sound design, too. Fabulous sound design. This film sounded terrifying um and also one of the best opening scenes uh, of a horror film that i saw last year um yes, you will be the asking, best credits yeah. of a horror film as well oh yeah definitely uh you will be asking yourself what the hell is going on for the first five or six minutes of the film because it's supposed to be you know an urban based uh evil dead but uh just have a little bit of patience it's worth it i, I will say this as well like he got that franchise perfectly and i had the, the pleasure to interview lee cronin for the film and he talked about how much he loved the Scream series and then how kind of pissed off he was that it had gone away from the murder mystery aspect of it. And that's up for grabs now. And I would love to see him take, I think he'd be the man to kind of breathe new life into the Scream franchise as well. I think he'd do something clever with it anyway. Um, do I want to see Lee Cronin take on a franchise like that? Not really. I If he has another, if he has another good Evil Dead film in him, then go for it. But at the same time, I'd love to see him do something original. That's a, a weird thing you kind of touched on because it done really well. It was very well received critically, but there just seems to be absolutely no talk of a sequel to it. Another Evil Dead. Yeah. Well, it just it made a fortune. Like it was, it was. It's definitely among the most profitable horror films of the last few years because it cost somewhere like was it like sixteen to twenty million to make, and it crossed the hundred million mark, um, and then some. Maybe like it was up around the hundred and fifty, but I think it went onto digital platforms far too soon. Um, and that was a problem with a lot of films this year. Um, that it's like, look, the wheels are still turning here. You're still making money. Why? Why is this? This and this is a film that's built for cinemas because what's gonna what's gonna make a, a freaky horror film even freakier when you have a you know a cinema full of people losing their minds? That that that's something that you can't get at home. Um, so yeah, I don't know why there's no talk of a sequel. Another film now that's looking like it might get a sequel. Godzilla minus one. I don't, you haven't seen this, have you? I haven't, no. This is, by some distance, the best Godzilla film I have ever seen. I was absolutely stunned by this. This was probably my my big surprise of the year. Like, anyone who knows me knows I'm a sucker for giant monster movies. And I also, for saying how goddamn bad they are, especially when you see, like, the Godzilla and the Kong films, how they've gone now. They're just unwatchable neon shite. This, the, the, the biggest compliment I can give this is after the initial attack uh, in Godzilla, there's about a 20-minute period where it's just, you know, it's all kind of character work. And I had completely forgotten I was watching a Godzilla film until he popped back up again. Oh, yeah, shit, this is a, a, a Godzilla thing. I got so invested in the human story of it. For those of you who don't know, it's basically it's at the end of World War II. It was a, a kamikaze pilot. He lands on an island, basically fakes that there's an issue with his plane because he doesn't want to, you know, die in battle. 
And then it's kind of the, the fallout of that, of how he, you know, how he's received in his village when he goes home. There's kind of the, the shame of that, you know, you should have had this glorious death and having to go through, you know, a town that's been destroyed by war and people looking at him, essentially blaming him like, oh, you, you know, you should have done this and that. Like, he's never going to save any of them. But just the kind of the relationships he has with all the kind of the broken people off the fallout of that. And him trying to redeem himself against, you know, not just his own people about a war and obviously a giant lizard in the middle of all of this. But it was just an absolutely fantastic film. And had you taken Godzilla out of that film, I still think I would have said it was one of my films of the year. And that's kind of the the biggest compliment that I could give it, that a Godzilla film. I wasn't waiting just for the monster to attack. I was invested in the story as much as I was the the special effects and, you know, the, the giant lizard destroying the city. Well, that's what you want from a Godzilla film. And that's what they, you know, like the best Godzilla films were the ones that, you know, made you think or the ones that kind of weren't really about, you know, a monster going around destroying the place. Um, yeah, I've it, it completely passed me by, unfortunately. Um, I was too busy watching. I was too busy watching Monarch, which is a good Godzilla series. I don't know if you've watched this. No, it yeah. isn't. It, it, I, I came out with the Godzilla minus one. And I had an episode of Monarch there and I just went, they should be embarrassed putting this on after that because this is trite compared to that. Did you stop after one episode? I stopped after four. Ah, right. Okay. You, okay. You gave it. Like you've, you've Godzilla, you've Court Russell. How are you making this boring and uninteresting? I disagree. I quite like the, I like the whole Kurt Wyatt thing. Yeah. Again, that's interesting, but wasn't done in any way that was in any way exciting and you know, you're making Court Russell boring that himself as a skill. No, oh, I didn't think he was boring in it. I, I, I'm sorry that I brought the conversation around to what's on the small screen, um, but I will check out Godzilla Minus One. Okay, we'll go back to something we do agree on and something right up your alley. I think this could possibly be both of our films of the year, which which disappoints me because, again, this is one you recommended to me, and that's Past Lives. Yep. Just beautiful. Um and I hope it makes a splash at the Oscars uh, because it certainly deserves uh, it certainly deserves to. Um, and I think to describe it as like a, a love story is kind of a, a funny one because, yes, it is a romantic drama, but it's about two people who never really made it to the next level together. It's about two people who have that once in a lifetime connection that should go the distance. But unfortunately, they're rarely on the same continent. So as a result, they, they're they just destined to lead separate lives with other people. Um, and we follow these two uh, these two characters, Nora, played by Greta Lee, who's just terrific in this, and Hei Sung, played by Tia Yu, from their childhood uh, in South Korea all the way through to adulthood when she has moved to New York to be a, a writer. And he is at home, and he's kind of he kind of doesn't really know what he wants to do with his life, but whenever he was around or whenever he had this online relationship with Nora, because they they're, they're best friends when they're kids. And then they, they kind of, uh, they separate and then they come back when together when they're in their twenties and they have this lovely little relationship online, whenever he's around her, or whenever she's in his life, he's kind of the best version of himself. And then when they separate, she's still quite successful, but he's just a little bit lost. Um, and then, the, so the film kind of leads us up to this, you know, inevitable reunion. And I'm not really giving much away here. This is, this is based, the basic premise. Uh, their inevitable reunion in New York. The only problem is she's married 
and he thinks that maybe this is going to be the time where he gets to the you know finally say how he feels about her um so that's the basic gist of it and people listening might think oh you know it's so it's just another sort of before richard linklater sort of romantic setup it's not it's very much its own thing it's do you know what it is it's it's a film that makes you think about every relationship that you ever had in your life romantic or otherwise and for a film to be able to do that uh that's that's a very powerful thing. That's a very impressive. Uh, that's a very impressive feat. It is. It's one of those films that it, it would be dangerous to have a few drinks after because you will. It's about every relationship you didn't have. Yeah. And you'll find yourself kind of going through all the the, the what ifs, and you're like, well, I did as well. Like kind of all these these missed connections, these missed moments. Would that have, have been something? And it's essentially a love story between two people who aren't in love with each other. I do. Th- I I I I think they're. You didn't think that they were in love with each other? I think they're in love with the idea of a life they could have had, but didn't. And I think, again, this is my kind of interpretation of it. Had they got together, and again, not to spoil too much of it, I don't think that would have lasted. Yeah, I think they are probably in love with the idea of what they could have been together and what they could have made together. But maybe it was for the best that they they didn't. Um, And you know what? It kind of made me think of like every friendship that i've had as well and every friendship that 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 i didn't have and all those kind of people who kind of just drift in and out of your life and yeah it do, it makes you think it makes you think far too much when, you, when it you're like it, it idealizes yeah friendships relationships ones you had ones you didn't have and it, yeah it's just it's something that really really stuck with me it was definitely the, the film that kind of it last longer than any other film i saw this year and what i constantly find myself kind of going back to I will say this, the husband was way too fucking understanding for a lot of that film. He should have been uh, throwing digs at a couple of points during that film. John Margot, that's a lovely performance out of him. And he also gets one of the best lines in the film because when his wife tells him, uh, when Nora says to him that, you know, uh, my friend Hayson, he's coming to New York and we're going to meet up and we're all going to do something together. You know, the husband is actually involved in this. Um, She then says, you know, well, look, we grew up and then we were best buds and then we were separated and we came back together. She tells him the whole story. And then he says you're in an amazing story and she is um and he's far too understand you know remember that scene where he says uh is is your friend this was a romantic comedy i'd be the villain yeah yeah or is your friend that that was actually very good too or is your friend attractive and nora says "Mm, i don't know it's like answer it better nora (laughs) like um yeah brilliant performances uh beautiful looking film as well uh reminded me again a lot of richard linklater's before films uh which is never a bad thing but uh but it's its own thing it has its own identity uh quite witty uh extraordinarily moving um that ending stayed with me for a while i was gonna say the ending of that is is one of those things that's really ambitious that's either gonna torn you off or just stay with you forever like it's it's a confident film is what i came away from and i think it's the first time director as well yep and to to end a film the way it does i was like that takes balls to do that because this could go either way this could torn people off completely but i absolutely loved it. i bought into every single aspect of it yep uh quite looking forward to seeing what celine song does next uh she's the writer and director behind this um yeah and for a first time film uh, it's an extraordinary achievement. Okay, so I think we can agree on that. That was our, our film of the year. Uh, oh, no other film. I That was the best experience that I had in the cinema this year, uh, where I was just hanging on to every word. I was just just in, I completely hypnotized by that film. 
So we'll work on a, a top three. So we'll agree on that. So that we'll get that out of the way. Positions two or three are up for grabs. What two and three would you have in there? Oh, now I'm trying to remember everything we talked about. <laughs> um, Let's go through your, you, the, the list we went through. We went through uh, Tar. We went through Marcel, uh, the Shell, Barbenheimer, Spider-Verse, yeah. Turtles, Anatomy of a Fall, Still, Fablemans or Killers of the Flower Moon, I think as well you were, you were a fan of. Yeah, I was. Yeah, definitely. Um, right. Okay, I have my two. I'll start with the. I'll, I'll start with the Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, I'm now thinking of all of the films that that that, that we never discussed. But Killers of the Flower Moon is a very impressive piece of work. Um, it. I, I was a little bit disappointed at how many headlines it generated because of the 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 runtime and you know the amount of people as well that I spoke to who said that they weren't going to see it because they weren't going to go see it in the cinema because it's three and a half hours long. Um, I thought. That's not really like it's 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 not that much longer than 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 a lot of other films, and I mean it's a Scorsese picture. What 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 what's what's the problem here? And I will put uh, Martin Scorsese in you know a list of five directors that you can give me a four or five hour film. I'm going to go see this. This this is not going to disappoint. Um, I thought it was an extraordinary piece of work. Uh, it was brilliantly handled because it is such a tricky tale. It documents these brutal murders of the Osage Native Americans uh, who found oil on their land in 1920s Oklahoma and all of a sudden had to, you know, they, they for, for a long time, it had to deal with, you know, uh, white men coming in and, you know, uh, taking their land and just, um, and, and, and committing atrocities. But when they found out that there was oil there as well and that, you know, the Native Americans were all of a sudden rich, um, the murders that occurred were just, it, it was just, horrendous stuff um so to take a tale like that and to tell it as beautifully and to tell it so well um that's scorsese um and he he has a wonderful cast here in leonardo dicaprio and robert de niro um but i think the film and i know we talked about it here before belongs to lizzie gladstone um she is just this steady thoughtful beating heart of this uh ambitious epic feature um and to see her uh picking up all of this awards buzz and also wins uh, most recently at the Golden Globes. And I think that Oscar nomination is definitely going to be hers. Um, it's well-deserved. Um, it's just, it is just. An, a- I liked it. I didn't love it. I think, and uh, the, the same issue I had with the Irishman, I think uh, Thelma Shoemaker has won, you know, one foot in retirement at this point now. I think she just stopped editing films. I thought the pacing of it wasn't great. Like Goodfellas and Casino, again, both films, which run over three hours. I think the pacing of them is absolutely incredible. Like it flies by. I felt every minute of this past, like I think past the two hour mark, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm ready for this to start wrapping up. And we're talking about kind of confident endings to films like past lives that work. The ending to this just completely took me out of the film. I thought that was a massive misstep. Again, not to give anything away. There's a cameo essentially that wraps up the film. And I, I it just, that didn't work for me at all. Yeah, we argued about this. It absolutely worked for me. I thought it was uh, it was Scorsese rather than, you know, wrapping up his film by saying and then this happened and that happened or having some sort of like a little crawl across the screen just to explain everything. He decided to do something a little bit quirky, a little bit different. Well, we'll just we'll we'll, we'll spoil it. Martin Scorsese essentially narrates uh, uh, like a kind of an RKO newsreel yeah. of what happened with the end. And I think because you've spent three hours, 40 minutes immersed in this world to try and make it, you know, as real and as immersive as possible. And all of a sudden, you know, Martin Scorsese pops in, well, that's Martin Scorsese. And you, you've kind of undone, you've taken me out of it. You've shown me, you know, 
you've turned the camera the other way and and just the, the whole magic of the film is gone for me in that moment no i quite liked it i think he knew what he was doing there and i quite liked how seriously and how you know how serious and sensitive and sympathetic like this film is and and that you know it is such a an extraordinary story and then he showed that you know this is the way this story has often been treated uh by modern america you know and it's all and and the and that that little detail as well, or that little part in this, like in this very short radio play at the end that shows you all of the, that tells you all the people who are left out of the story that they're doing. It's such a hard one to talk about without spoiling, isn't it? Um, but it, he's kind of commenting on the fact that like, this is just a forgotten or trivial part of American history. Why is that? Very curious to see his 80 minute Jesus film now uh, off the back of that. Yeah. He's the only director in the world who, if any other filmmaker, even if Chris Nolan came out and said, I'm going to make an 80-minute Jesus film, I'd be like, right, good luck with that. If Scorsese turns around and says, I'm going to make an 80-minute Jesus film, I'm like, see you down the front, Marty. Again, I'm not letting you get that on the top three list. So I, I would have, for my three, I, I know you're not going to give me Man Called Otto, so I'd say Marcel and Evil Dead Rise. No, I'll give you I'll give you a veto on one of them, and you can put one of yours in, but it's not going to be Killers of the Flower Moon, I can tell you that. Okay, I didn't know I was coming on this show to be told what I can't have in my top three. <laughs> Whose name's above the title, son? <laughs> um, okay, well, I'll put Marcel in there, um, and can I put one more Irish in? Yeah, go ahead. Lakelands. I haven't seen it. it- uh, again one of these that every time i went to see at the time didn't sue or it, it was just it just came and went in the cinema and i haven't hasn't popped up in any streaming service yet i think it might be on ifi at home grant that's that's yeah. a nice story so lakelands for those who haven't seen it what's it about uh brilliant brilliant story about a young man from longford uh who has a promising uh career ahead of him uh promising future um as a guy player and his dream just basically comes down crashing down one night after this uh random uh street attack well he kind of gets into a bit of a uh a scrap in a club and then it spills out into the street but he takes a knock to the head and it's it's a career ending injury um but he refuses to believe that um and he just starts to basically spiral um you know he's drinking too much um he's uh he's not really looking after himself um and no one around him really knows what to do but thankfully he has a little bit of support in this old childhood friend and maybe an ex-girlfriend uh, portrayed by danielle golligan um her name is grace and she can kind of see that you know my friend is in trouble here and she's home to look after her dad and she decides to also kind of you know check in on 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 your hardwick's uh, character um it's brilliant. It's, a, it's such a brilliant film. Uh, quite honest, uh, quite poignant, um, brilliantly performed, uh, like uh, like the best Irish dramas that we've been seeing over the last couple of years, um, like on Colleen Hume, for instance, a film that only ever talks when it needs to, that doesn't hit you over the head by explaining itself every minute. We know how tough a time this this, this fella is having. He doesn't need to keep saying this. Um, and also it has Lorcan Cranich in there um, playing uh, playing the lead character's uh, dad. Uh, I thought he just steals the show because he, he's he's keen, uh, the, the lead character's name is Keen. He's, um, he's a farmer and he's sort of that old... He's sort of that old stock Irish dad who's just... who He, he bottles up his feelings himself. And when he sees his son falling apart... He doesn't know how to handle it, but like something just kind of clicks, clicks where he's like, well, I'm just I'm going to have to just try and look after him here. Um, so it'll break your heart. Um, brilliantly, uh, just exceptional performances. You, you, you should definitely uh, stream this from IFI at home. You've sold that well. So we've got Past Lives, Evil Dead Rise, 
Marcel, Lakelands. I'll let you, we'll turn it into a top five and I'll let you pick the fifth because you, you've you've pitched the Christdale Lakelands now and I'm definitely going to watch that tonight on a, on the IFI player. Oh, so I, I get to pick it in one more film? You get one more pick because, and I felt bad for telling you you couldn't pick one. So there you go. <laughs> okay. Anatomy of a Fall. Yeah, and one I haven't seen. Yeah, I had to get a French film in there, Andy. Of course you did. French, yeah. pretentious. The only thing is it's not in black and white. That one, uh, I think this is going to be the one that that pips past lives. Like this was, uh, it won the was it the Golden Globe recently for that. It beat past lives for that. Yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah. The one it's, that steals its thunder, and it will deserve it. Uh, again, another long film. It's 152 minutes long. So, um, uh, yeah, get comfortable. But uh, Justin Triad, yeah, she won a Golden Globe there the other week. Um, and it, this film actually won the Palme d'Or can as well. Um, little Hitchcockian, a uh, little bit freaky, but a very simple story basically of an author, Sandra Huller, playing this successful German author who's tried in the French court for the alleged, alleged murder of a husband. Um, he is basically found face down in the snow outside their little chalet while they're on a skiing trip. And there are no witnesses. They have a son who is visually impaired. And although he kind of, you know, he's, he's around when the father falls, he obviously didn't see what happened. We didn't see what happened. So we're immediately thinking, did she do it? We, we don't really know. There are signs maybe to suggest that, you know, there was foul play in this murder, but at the, and, and there are also signs that they just had a terrible marriage and that, you know, um, he was just pissing her off for months and months leading up to this. Um, but, you know, she also just says, absolutely no way. I'm innocent. And we kind of believe her as well some of the times. Um, but most of us, they, for, we, we then move away from this alleged crime into full on dramatic courtroom drama territory. And Andy, this film taught me so much about I don't know what way the French legal system works. If it works like this, it's very entertaining. <laughs> it's it's um it's it's kind of uh, uh twisty and over the top and tricksy and melodramatic and it just flies along. Great performances from everyone. Kept me guessing. Um, actually, you know what? I I've I've watched this film and I'm not going to give anything away, but I still don't know what to make of the ending. I will say this: I watched the go- what's putting me off watching this is I watched the Golden Globes. And the director, uh, Justine Treat, is it? Justine Treat, yeah. Gets up. And by all accounts, she seems to have spoiled the end of the film during her oh, yeah. speech. Yeah, everyone keeps talking about the ending. Um, try to forget about that. But uh, once once you've watched it, we'll talk about the ending again. But uh, anyone who has seen it, I have been going up to them going, what did you make of this? What did you make of that? It's just, it, it, it got inside my head, Andy, and it stayed there for days. Um, yeah, it, it really is a terrific piece of work. So our, our films of the year, Past Lives, Evil Dead Rise, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, Anatomy of a Fall, and Lakelands. Chris, I'm surprised at how well we got through that list without killing each other. Thank you so, so much for joining. Again, really disappointed that for another year, my film of the year is one of your recommendations in Past Lives, which joins a promising young woman on that list as well. So thank you very much for that. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks for that. Nice, man, Andy. We'll go for the hat trick next year. <laughs> Hopefully not. Uh, It's going to be what? Joker 2 next year. (laughs) Chris Wasser, thanks very much. Thanks, Andy.